in some ways we should try and prevent crosstalk. Yeah, and don't worry, your, your sunburn doesn't look too bad at all. Oh, you're doing it already. Welcome to Tales from the Departure Lounge. This is a podcast about travel, for business, pleasure, or for study. My name's Nick, and I'm joined by my co-pilot, Andy. Together, we're going to be talking to some amazing guests about how travel has transformed their lives. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Welcome to the podcast. All right, so in this episode, we chatted to Martin Edwards. He's the Director of Marketing and Advancement at Loughborough University. Thoroughly well-traveled, very proud Welshman. I mean, he's worked at more universities than, than anybody I know. Um, and has a really, really interesting career and a really, really interesting take on the world. For such an experienced leader, I think people are going to enjoy how irreverent this episode is. Wise, funny, magnanimous, exceptionally passionate about the value of higher education. Let's get some tales from the Departure Lounge from Martin Edwards. There's a particular word that we have called hiraith, which is this longing to return back to Wales. I took a sheet and a Tesco carrier bag full of Stella and a pair of pants, and that was it. It went up his back and out of his collar. These frog's legs, they were like anatomically perfect, like us holding up Arnold Schwarzenegger's legs. So before we get into the episode, I thought I'd pass on some information to you about our sponsor, QS. Most people know QS for their world-leading higher education rankings, or maybe they've attended some of their popular recruitment events. But QS is actually much more than this. It's a holistic partner to the higher education industry. That's both in terms of enhancing institutional performance and optimizing student engagement. And one area that has seen a huge increase in demand over the last few years is QS enrollment solutions. And this is where QS works as an extension of a university partner to handle inquiries, to process applications and convert offer holders and much more. And all of this is focused on bespoke results supported by best-in-class technology. So if you want to drive geographical diversity, focus on overall growth, or just have smarter engagement with potential students, I suggest you visit qs.com to fill out the contact. We've also left some links in the episode notes, so let's get on with the podcast. Martin, welcome to Tales from the Departure Down podcast. How are you doing? It's nice to be here. I'm, I'm fully aware that I am the pilot. I am the guinea pig. Uh, the, the little tiddler on the end of your hook, uh, and hopefully there'll be bigger beasts in further episodes. So it's, it's good to be part of this. You're a, you're a huge catch, as far as I'm concerned, Martin. Where would you where would you like to go? Where's your favourite place to travel? So clearly, I'm I'm Welsh, and everyone knows that about me. So it's a given that my number one destination would be anywhere in Wales. But let's forget about that. Let's imagine I'm actually going to get on a plane. <laughs> so I think the place that I, I really love to travel to and haven't been for a number of years is Philadelphia in the US. It might surprise some people. It's not the most exotic place. There's a relationship between Philadelphians and Philadelphia and New York, which is akin to maybe England and Wales. So in thinking Wales, we're quite proud of the fact we've got this big, loud, brash, big brother next to us. And it's a bit like that with Philadelphians and New Yorkers. Because I think if you go to Philly and you say to people, what's the best city, New York or Philadelphia? They'll say, it's always Philly because, you know, we've got better food, better music, better architecture, better culture, but we're not as big headed. So I fell in love with Philadelphia genuinely. And it's one of the, one of the places, even though it's 
US politics can be a bit challenging. I would I would happily live there for a portion of time. But we've got to back up here. Hang on. Why have you been to Philadelphia? What in what context do you know Philadelphians? So I got a portfolio career. I jump around a lot, you know. In fact, I was telling somebody recently about a career and I'd actually left out two jobs, forgotten about them. Seriously. So um, a huge portion of my life, just forgotten. So uh, anyway, to answer your question, Nick, um, I was very fortunate to work for IDP. Um, other, other agents are out there as well, but I worked for IDP. And uh, I ended up going to IDP uh, in, in the US, the US Philadelphia office, about three or four times a year at one point, or at least a week at a time. And it was just amazing because I think, up until that point, I'd only been to the US once before. It was a long, long time ago with an ex-girlfriend to Vegas for a long weekend. Oh. So that doesn't really count oh. because Vegas is great, but it doesn't feel like real life. And this was going to us, admittedly for work and in a hotel, but being somewhere for a period of time, working with people that were from that city and lived in that city. Yeah. And you, you both have traveled, you know, when you're with somebody local that knows the place, but not just knows it. In the case of Philadelphians, Philly people, they absolutely are so proud about the city and the history because there's so much there, you know, um, you know, the Liberty Bell, the initial Congress and the Declaration of Independence, the first ever penitentiary, the first ever theater, the first ever hospital, the original cobbled streets, live music, beer. So in some, and, and I grown up as a kid, I was obsessed with America. I grew up in a small village in Wales, wanted to be Michael J. Fox. And so I've always had this thing, this, this mythical thing about the US. So to actually go there and be with Americans for a period of time that somehow could understand my accent without subtitles and found my jokes funny. They, they became good friends. There's a particular word that we have called hiraith, which is this longing to return back to Wales. So if you're a Welsh person, you leave Wales, you go somewhere else, you've always got this longing that pulls you back, this yearning for Wales. And I've not got a yearning like that for anywhere else apart from Philadelphia, which is not quite strange. So there yeah. you go. Did you do the Rocky Steps? And I can, I can see I, you I jumping did. up and down um, at the top. So the Rocky Steps lead up to the, the museum and there's lots of modern art in there. It's an incredible museum. I definitely recommend it. And it was, it was a bit icy when I was there the first time. So health and safety, I sort of took it one step at a time. <laughs> oh, I, did it in, I sort of tiptoed up it rather than run up it, you know, because I don't want to slip. No, I don't want to slip and fall. I'm not at my age. So. You didn't run up the steps, but I bet you did the punching in the air at the top though, didn't you? I did do that. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did 10 star jumps. If you don't know, there's a big bronze statue of Sliced Alone at the base of that building. And there's actually a queue of people at all times wanting a photo with that. But I don't think necessarily all these people then go into this amazing museum, which has got Salvador Dali's and God knows what in it. A lot of people will identify with this, I think, who are listening. That it's something you don't get as a tourist when you're someone's yeah. guest, when they're showing you local customs, when you're getting to know people. And like you said, that kind of gets in the blood. I did all kinds of stuff when I was there. A really nice thing that we did as part of IDP, part of our CSR activity, we, we went and volunteered in a soup kitchen. You know, you can imagine, so going from a university to a soup kitchen. Before I started doing this job, I was not well-traveled. I came from a very working-class background. I was fortunate that my, um, my dad loves the sun, so we would go on holidays. As a kid, I'd go on holiday, but it would be like, you know, two weeks in Menorca or somewhere, and it would all be, you know... It was like a home from home, you know, so then going to India or going to Nigeria, there is something reassuring about getting to know the place. If you've got local contacts, I guess then that gives you that confidence to really experience the culture and go out and do things on your own um, and truly live it. 
Have you got any laptops, liquids, sharp objects? Take them out your bag, put them in the trays, put them in the trays, please. Have you got any laptops, liquids, sharp objects? Take them out your bag, put them in the trays, put them in the trays, please. Please? Please put them in the trays. Just take them out your bag. Don't worry about your belt. Don't worry about the coins either. Okay, okay, put the coins in. But don't worry about the chewing gum. Yeah, no, your shades are fine as well. And take off your coat, please, mate. Okay, this part of the podcast is called Any Laptops, Liquids or Sharp Objects. And it's where we want to find out, I guess, what you've learnt on the road, Martin. So first up, when you're travelling, what can't you live without? Oh, that's a tough one. There are certain colleagues that that, that will remain nameless, such as Barry Sullivan at Cardiff, that essentially <laughs> take you know, take all their home comforts with them, you know, grooming kits and various, you know, potions, face creams, foot spas, you, you, you know, all the sort of stuff, you know, the, the comforts of home. And I'm, I'm quite basic, you know. Um, in fact, amongst my, my friends, old university friends, there was a, there, this is true, there was a time that we went camping once for a week in Newquay and I took a sheet and a Tesco carrier bag full of Stella and a pair of pants and that was it. So I think... <laughs> I've had to learn to, to sort of pack better over the years. That's a genuine true story, by the way. And, and so the one thing I do have to have with me, and Andy will appreciate why, is my music. I have to have some sort of way of listening to music. Um, and I, I used to have, you know, an iPod shuffle. Do you remember those? When I first started doing the job. And I have, the, I have this way of getting the train in South Korea um, from Seoul to another city, I can't remember where, for university visits. And I had my light pod shuffle on. And I just felt, and again, I was still quite young. And I had my music on. It was a lovely Korean train, looking at this amazing Korean countryside, lots of golf courses for some reason, and listening to my tunes. It was a weird thing about a bit of home, a bit of me, but it's an amazing location. And what, there were certain songs, um, as Andy will know, that I like to sing overseas in public, often Tom Jones. Um, but equally, there are certain songs. If I'm on a trip and I maybe have had a long day, or I've just arrived, or I'm just getting, you know, yeah, the, you know, I just need a bit of a lift. I'll stick certain tunes on really fucking loud. If your flight's delayed and you're in an airport and somewhere really dull, or you're on a really long internal flight and there's no films, then fine, have a book. But I, I try to take books less now. And the reason for that is I found that if you if you go your head in the book, you're not always looking at the world around you. But I've I've done a lot of my, I, I'm, you know, maybe it's that kind of, you know, again, whilst, well, without playing it too hard, that whilst working class thing. I mean, for me, I still get excited to get on a plane. I genuinely do. Yeah. There's still, I get a buzz going to an airport, going somewhere new in particular, but even just going somewhere I've been before, there's still something in me which just loves getting on the plane and thinking about the, the whole physics of how the hell does it get off the ground? I'm going somewhere totally different. The last time I went to Australia was to, to Hobart, which actually, without going off on another tangent, was one of is one of my favorite places. If you haven't been to Hobart, go to Hobart. It's absolutely amazing. Um, it's incredible, but it's right down the bottom of Australia. In the harbour, there are these, these big icebreaker ships that come up from the South Pole. Um, there's an amazing uh, m- museum of modern art called Mona, which is incredibly, it's like a Bond villain's lair. It's in the mountain. Um, and if I may just tell a little anecdote about this particular museum, um, it's quite a quirky museum. It's not the sort of museum you take your grandmother to. 
uh, there's things there, you know, that, you know, there's, there's a bit of an, an age restriction. And there was one particular exhibit. It was quite a dark corridor where they, they essentially had a wall of vaginas. So it was a wall of ceramic molds of different women's, um, you know, private parts. And we, I was there with various other IDP colleagues from around the world. Um, and there was one group of colleagues who were studying them and they, they, they hadn't read the, th- the explanation of what they were and they couldn't work out what they were. And I just overheard the conversation. Oh, are they some sort of seashell? It was, it was quite interesting. You know, like you might put it to your ear and hear the sea. And what about when you, when you arrive somewhere and you check into a hotel? It, after traveling all this time, have you adopted any funny habits? Have you, have, you, have, you, have you started eating things that you never thought you would have eaten before? So food's a good one. Isn't it? I remember vividly, you know, have, as a kid having having garlic bread for the first time and thinking, "Wow, what is this stuff?" You know, you know, it was just. Uh, I used to live on Bernard Matthews turkey drumsticks, which are just disgusting, and bird's eye beef burgers. Um, I don't think I saw a tomato until I was about eighteen. So for me, you know, the overseas food initially was like it was a it was a whole other world. Um, and I remember, um, I'm not answering your question, not because I don't want to, but just I was thinking about food, <laughs> some of the interesting, bizarre things I've eaten. And I remember once, and I will try anything. I want these people, I'm not scared, even though I've, I'm not used to, I, I will partly out of respect to whoever I'm with, if I'm, if I'm being hosted, I, I'll always try it. But also partly because I just am, it's about embracing it. Um, but I, the challenge I've got, which Andy's aware of, is um, partly because of rugby and partly because of genetics. I, my, I can't really bite properly. I can bite, but my teeth don't line up. So certain things are a challenge when I'm chewing them, Nick. And I remember once being in Southeast Asia with some colleagues, and they ordered frog's legs. Now, I've had frog's legs in France, and you just eat them, right? These frogs, they, they were like, um, in, in, their, in, their, in their previous lives when they were alive, they never missed leg day. They never missed leg day. You know, calf raises, hack squats, deadlifts, you know, CrossFit training, these frogs' legs, they were like anatomically perfect. Like I was holding up Arnold Schwarzenegger's leg. It had a thigh, a hamstring, a calf. And I just thought, and you couldn't cut with a knife and fork. It was impossible. So I was there for ages trying to chew. I thought I can't swallow it whole because I literally will choke to death. Certain things, like bits of chicken feet. Have you ever had chicken feet? The bit in the middle, the cartilage, I have similar problems. But it's only that big. So if you get a good slug of beer or water, you can get it down. You, But there was no way I could chew. I could swallow whole this frog's leg. So I, I had it in my mouth for like a good 30 seconds and then you know, politely went, <laughs> and then just coughed it up. It was more just I couldn't even get it you know, down there in the first place, really. I mean, there's obviously plenty mm. of stories, Andy, about what happens when it gets down there and the problems that can cause. Um, you know, plenty of scatological things we could talk about you know, if she wished to. Well, I think we, we probably should talk about it, seeing as you brought it up, Martin. What's the... Um some of the, some of your most difficult experiences when you've been so, overseas. And there's some anecdotes I think that get passed down from international office to international officer over the years and generations. Um, and I won't I won't include the names of these individuals just in case you know they may they may not mind. But it, there's that one story, and again I think this was in Southeast Asia I believe, um, of a, a of a young I don't know if it was an academic or a, an international officer, but someone that was quite new to travel um, had had a, an upset stomach but was soldiering on and went to the exhibition uh, and was sitting at the stand. I don't know if you've seen the exhibitions. Nick. You can imagine, if for those that haven't been overseas to a fair, it's like a youth gas fair, but overseas. And they've got their booth, their lovely banners, painstakingly hung up. And you sit there and you talk to these lovely students. And this person was feeling really rough. Uh, and the thing about, if you know anything about flood water or a leaky roof, 
water finds a way. Mm. And in the same way that, you know, when you've got dysentery, you know, diarrhea, it's essentially a liquid. It'll find a way out of you somehow, you know? So this guy's sitting there, um, very much like I am now, and, um, you know, look, you know, talking to a student, maybe looking at their transcripts, and could feel it coming, and it went up his back and out of his collar. And, uh, <laughs> on, you know... Onto the backing, onto his sort of exhibition stands, and potentially, you know, onto some of the transcripts of the student. The neckline yes. story is the sector myth. Are you saying you know the person? We, we've talked about this. Yeah, you know, we've sat like like campfire stories. You sit around the bar overseas and you talk about these myths, and then some of the other people start to say, "Well, actually, when I had this problem, it was a similar kind of ferocity. You know, liquid finds a way." So. Uh, I, 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 I think it's true. I think it's true. What's the purpose of your visit? That's what I'm asking you. Business pleasure or study? Ah, okay, go through. Immigration selector. Okay, so this section of the podcast is called What is the Purpose of Your Visit? And I once saw you talk to a group of people, Martin, um, at a training session, and you talked about your reasons for getting into HE, into higher education. So yes. do you want to tell us why you do what you do, how you got into it? So I was the first in my family to go to uni. And it was, you know, I, I grew up in a little village and there weren't a lot of my mates that necessarily went to university. And I was really conscious of that. And my, my mum and my grandmother really supported me and pushed me. Um, and, and, and not just through just saying, you know, you can do it, you can do it. But my, my grandmother, for example, was a practically trained secretary. She could do touch typing. And I've got horrendous handwriting, you know, borderline, you know, and I don't say this in a lighthearted way, possibly some dyslexia there, poorly handwriting. And she could touch type and she had, she had this old fashioned word processor. So my grandmother typed up all, I mean this, all of my A-level coursework. I would recite it to her. So I'd write it down, my, my shitty scroll, my hieroglyphics. And then she would type it up all up and we print it out really slowly, this, this ancient uh, printer. But I, I have had and do have a photographic memory, which is so fucking helpful. So when it came to exams, my mum would sit down with me and, um, with a textbook and just say, right, tell me what's on this page. And I just recite it. So my mother would spend, she'd, you know, she'd work all day and then we'd spend about three hours in the evening helping me, you know, cram for my A-level exam. So they were really like hands-on supportive. It wasn't assumed that we'd go to uni, but when my teacher sort of said, oh, he's quite bright. And my parents and my grandparents were really supportive. So I've always had that in the back of my mind. And I don't think anybody wants to let their family down, but I was really conscious of how much it cost even in those days. So for me, HG's always been genuinely really important and a massive transform transformative thing for me in my life i think i've always that's always stayed with me um and that pride that my family had and i had through them i've always had a bit of that kind of thing about the underdog and people really striving to get to uni and i think we, all, we sometimes forget about because he becomes a political football i'm interested as you've gone into leadership roles do you get to to see students and support students directly. I do 
try and do it. And I think you know, I, I definitely, um, and not just be to, to be seen to do it. You know, I, I always volunteer for open days and graduation and I try and get involved and, uh, cause I do miss that. And I do try and do, you know, trips occasionally overseas when I can and, and be student facing. I do try and take leadership quite seriously in that I do feel I've got a duty to people I, I lead and manage and work with. You know, when you go into an organization at a lower level, so say you go in as a salesperson or a marketer, the further up you go, you, you get removed from that and you just have to almost find that kind of peace with it. And you can't always do that low level job all the time because it wouldn't be appropriate. If I started going into the recruitment team now and tell them how to do it, they'd be like, this guy's a micromanager. What a pain in the ass. Even if three weight was, it wouldn't be as up to the minute and as relevant, you know, and things change. So I think it's part of being a large team and it gets bigger and bigger. You're going to get further and further away from maybe the stuff that you used to like doing. So then the challenge is on me, you know, how do I still find the time maybe to get involved in stuff like that? Nothing beats, I think, going to a recruitment fair in country X and hearing and having the conversations between the students and the parents, they're talking to agents, talking to school counselors. You, you can't beat that, but you can't always work with somebody. And she won't mind me mentioning her name. I worked with Arlene Griffiths three times, right? Um, Arlene, you know, really tough manager, sets really high standards, but incredibly loyal. And the best thing, one of the best things Arlene taught me was she, she worked in sales for many years. More than anything else, it was about listening. It was asking questions and listening to the answer. Markets change. Some of the fundamentals will remain the same. And that's about, you know, human beings and relationships and being respectful and kind and compassionate. I need to find out about you. You make me curious, you do. So please tell me right now, what is important to you? Anything to declare? Anything to declare? So please tell me right now, what is important to you? Martin, this, this part of the podcast is, is called Anything to Declare. It's a section where you get to talk about something that you're passionate about or something you want other people to know about or just impart any knowledge, wisdom uh, that, you, that you'd like to. That's, that's dangerous, isn't it? Giving someone like me that kind of freedom and power. Loughborough is probably, you know, for some people overseas, one of the best universities they've ever heard of, let alone can't pronounce. People know we're good for student experience and employability, but some of the research we do is genuinely world-leading and influences policy, you know, particularly in things like um, living wage, minimum income standards, you know, um, climate change and net zero. There's lots of examples I could give. And it's just, yeah, so for me as a marketer and a recruiter, that's the reason I came back a third time. You know, I was very happy doing this job at Swansea, which is where I grew up. You know, I do not, I'll do almost exactly the same job, similar size team. I just thought it's such a, an amazing, I hate to use the word product, but it is such an amazing raw materials there because it's genuinely got amazing campus, the reputation for sport, but across lots of different areas. So you, you probably don't know, you know, Loughborough's top 50, top 60 in the world for art and design. You know, this isn't an advertising pitch, but until I went there and saw this amazing design and creative art school, not in London, not in Edinburgh and Glasgow, but in Loughborough, I was like, fuck, we're amazing. Top 50, 60 in the world for media and comms, you know, in the world now, not just in the UK. So 
there's lots of good stuff there i think it's important not just student recruitment not just brand and reputation and profile but you know working with the university on really big challenges and the two main ones are you know edi so how do we make loughborough but it's true of any university how do we make you know institutions like universities more you know, equitable diverse inclusive for everybody and then equally as important is is the climate emergency and as a dad and as somebody that just you know reads the news and is, and is just engaged it is a you know it's a challenge that there are people eminently more qualified than me to talk about but i think we've got such an incredible role around you know telling the story to a wider audience educating people educating ourselves you know helping to change the culture so that universities themselves you know are more sustainable they're talking the talk walking the walk when it comes to stuff like you know climate change and and building that into our our thinking and our values and what we do day to day whether it's the print prospectus or long haul flights or whatever because we you know we can't keep parking it to next year and saying oh we'll, we'll come to that because they won't they'll come to a point where you know it'll just be the tipping point and, and you know we need to be part of the solution so those are some of the big things that i'm thinking about and i would just encourage you know anybody in the sector to engage martin this has occurred to me are you aware of the of the the colony of Welshmen in Patagonia in Argentina, the town of Trevelin, where there is Welsh speaking going on. So there's a, there's an old pub quiz question, Nick, which I fear is is might be partly a myth, but I don't think it actually is. Who was the last Welsh speaking captain of a football team to captain his national team to victory over England at Wembley? Was it somebody? It was actually apparently. Gabriel Batistuta, because he has links to Patagonia and does speak some Welsh. Now, people have told me since that's an urban myth. I wish it was true. Could it be We've such got to find out. question? We've it would got be, yeah. to find out if Batistuta yeah. can speak Welsh, even a little bit of Welsh, because that'll that'll do. That'll do for me. Just knowing he can say Borada and Deal <laughs> would be great. But but isn't it beautiful though? Because it could. That's a great point though about this whole crazy business that we work in. Is that the world is a massive place and equally a very very small place, isn't it? Travelling, the amount of Welsh people or people with a link to, to Wales I have met. I have, I have sat through male voice choirs singing at embassies across the world. You know, as soon as I have, you know, it's, Welsh people get everywhere. Whether we should get everywhere is another thing. Thank you, Martin. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, getting to know, get inside your head and uh, getting to know the enigma that is Martin Edwards. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you've got something vaguely worthwhile to listen to from it, but it's always a pleasure to see you. So I appreciate the opportunity. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find them at talesfromthedepartureland.com. Please like and subscribe. We really appreciate you giving your time amazing people. Tales from the Departure Lounge is a Type 9 production for the Pine.